Why was there speculation that uh, the American government employed uh, Mengele and his services? And what what did you discover um, in that area? So um, the the allegations were were twofold. One that Mengele was was used by the U.S. the same way that Barbie had been used as an intelligence op- operative or in some other way, and that he had been um, that was one, and we we determined that that was not true. But it was the other allegation was that he was uh, lived openly in his hometown, uh, was interned and released knowingly, and uh, we determined that that also was not the case. That Mengele uh, was released with, without anyone knowing who he actually was, and that he was able to get to South America not through the help of the U.S., which had happened in the Barbie case, but through the um, assistance of his family and and you know he he traveled well-trod escape routes um, not only for Nazi war criminals but also for for refugees and and others who wanted to to leave Europe was he part of a post-war Nazi organization it, it's hard to say that for certain he certainly when he got to uh, Buenos Aires he he um, had some connection with the German emigrate community and he 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 met at least on I believe three occasions uh, uh, Adolf Eichmann who who was there wasn't a friend of his they were certainly from kind of different social classes in a way um, so he 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 had some connection with the the sort of organized German community in in um, in Buenos Aires but it's unclear whether um, he he did anything beyond the kind of social um, social connections it is true that. Um, emigrate Germans and some of them right wing and uh, with with connections assisted him later on in uh, in getting out of um, of Paraguay later on and to to Brazil and um, so he had some assistance from from um, right wing uh, former Nazi circles. How did he uh, manage to elude capture? while living in South America. So for the, although he tried very hard to elude capture while he was in Argentina, the the irony is that he didn't really need to because no one was really looking for him from from the time he arrived in 1949 until uh, almost a decade later, there was no active search for him uh, on the the part of the the Israelis or on the part of the the German government. Um, He... <clears throat> lived in Argentina under an assumed name until 1956 or so when he went to the German embassy and took back his his real name and, and admitted that he had come in under a false name and was given a, a German passport under the name of uh, Josef Mengele. He lived under the name of Jose Mengele in, in Paraguay, for instance. Um, and he got married in Uruguay in 1958 under his own name um, and was feeling um, feeling pretty good. And he, he had married, interestingly enough, his, his brother's widow. He'd gotten divorced from his wife in 1954 and he married his brother's widow. His younger brother had, had died of a heart attack in 1949 and Mengele married uh, his brother's widow and she came to um, South America with her son, who was Mengele's nephew. And when they got married, 
he became Mengele's stepson. And they lived openly in, in Buenos Aires. Um, Marta Mengele's name was in the phone book, um, and it was fairly open. It wasn't until the late summer of 1958, after he got married, while he was still living in Argentina, that he learned from his family, most likely, that the Germans um, had, the German police had come to the town of Gunzburg, where the family kind of dominated the economy, and started asking questions about Mengele, asking what happened to him. Um, and this alerted his family, who then alerted Mengele, that there was interest in him, judicial and, and, and police interest in him. Um, Mengele decided that he couldn't remain in Argentina. Argentina formally had a extradition treaty with, with uh, the Federal Republic of Germany, um, although extraditions were not, were not so easy to uh, acquire, but, but they still had a formal treaty. The, um, so he decided to go to Paraguay, where he had spent some time on business before, um, before that. And he, through an act of fraud, was able to gain Paraguayan citizenship in uh, May of 1958, when he, um, May of 1959, excuse me, um, he was able to, to convince two people whom he knew to testify that he'd been there for five years, which was a requirement for naturalization in Paraguay. Why did he go to Paraguay? Because Paraguayans uh, do not extradite their citizens. And by achieving uh, naturalized citizenship in Paraguay, he believed that he was safe then from, uh, from German justice. Um, and he believed that until the spring of 1960, when Adolf Eichmann was uh, arrested or captured and spirited out of Argentina by the Israelis. So all of Mengele's plans at that point just collapsed. He believed that he could live a normal life in Paraguay. He, he was there under the name of Jose Mengele. He didn't really have any concerns that he would be touched. And he knew that if he had been found, if he were found, that the Paraguayans wouldn't, wouldn't extradite him. But you could not, he could not be protected from this, the kind of uh, sort of extra legal mm -hmm. maneuvers that the Israelis applied. Uh, with Eichmann. So he decided then he had to, he really had to go underground. And then with the help of uh, some German emigre uh, individuals, uh, he took on a pseudonym and moved to in the, probably the fall of 1960 to uh, Brazil, where he remained for, for nearly 20 years before his death. Did the Germans or Israelis come close to finding him? and or capturing him? So a very, very interesting um, formally classified report by the Mossad was released in 2017 in Israel. And this details the entire effort by the Mossad to, to uh, find and capture Mengele. And it really begins after the Eichmann case, or it begins with the Eichmann case, where the uh, Mossad, uh, Eichmann was the prime the prime target for their operation in, in uh, Buenos Aires and Mengele was the secondary target. And uh, although ironically Mengele was already no longer in Argentina at the time was in Paraguay, but the, uh, once they had Mengele in the safe house in Buenos Aires, they went out to uh, Mengele's former residence. They questioned people. They, they tried to get him, but he was long gone. 
But they began then with a very comprehensive and at the beginning well-funded effort to locate him. There were a lot of wild goose chases, but the Israelis um, were able to recruit uh, a very effective agent, uh, a Dutch journalist who had done a series of interviews with, with Eichmann. And through him, they were able actually to discover the people who had helped Mengele, got him to, to Brazil. And it's almost certain that a team of Mossad uh, officers uh, confronted or, or, or witnessed Mengele within a, a, f- a few dozen meters um, in Paraguay in the summer of 1962. Um, they dropped, the, the operation was halted before anything could have been done for a number of reasons, not the least of which was um, so-called Operation Damocles, which was the, the um, uh, attempt by the um, Mossad to break up or to, to um, disrupt the activities of um, German scientists who were uh, working with the Egyptians in their ballistic rocket program. Um, the Mossad caught again the, the, the chase and in, in 1965, they, they were able to also almost get him, um, but that was the, the closest and the last time that they were within, within striking distance. Uh, although they could be, they continue their operations uh, until at some point um, the um, in 1967 the Mossad stopped looking for really stopped their actions to to try to find Nazi war criminals um, and that lasted for about a dozen years until um, Menachem Begin became prime minister and he resurrected and breathed new life into the effort of the Mossad to find Mengele and they picked up again this search for uh, the search for Mengele and. Um, continued to look for him even after his death in 1979, which they didn't know about uh, until 1985 when when uh, a body was found in Brazil that was thought to be Mengele's. How did you discover and confirm Mengele's death? And is there still any controversy regarding that issue? Well, he he would have been uh, a hundred and he he would have been a hundred and one years old uh, in in two weeks two weeks from now so it's unlikely that he would still be alive uh if you're asking whether people whether it was unanimous support for our conclusion that he died in brazil in 1979 no there are a lot of people uh, were not willing to accept that um for a, a number of reasons which i try to explain uh in the book um we were working with the Israel with the Israelis and the Germans, and in May of 1985, we had a, a big confab in in uh, Frankfurt where we laid out all of the information that we had. And the Germans and the and the Israelis did it the same. Um, the Germans then told us that they were about to execute a search warrant on a property in in Gunsburg in Mengele's hometown, where they were going to search the house of one of the uh, former executives of the Mengele firm and uh, they in fact executed that search warrant and found correspondence there that led them to believe that Mengele had drowned and, and died in in Sao Paulo in February of 1979. The, the Germans went directly to Sao Paulo, uh, the Israelis and, the, and we followed after them and uh, then began this this long phase of the investigation, which was essentially 
a forensic investigation into whether the body that was exhumed in, in Brazil in June of 1985 was in fact uh, Joseph Mengele. And that's a long story in and of itself. Um, but I can briefly summarize that in, within two weeks, the team of experts that we had, the U.S. had sent and that the Germans had sent, the Israelis did not uh, openly send a team of experts. Uh, they sent Menachem Rusek, who was a the head of the Nazi war crimes unit in the in the uh, police force. Um, after two weeks, and after a great deal of, of negotiation and uh, and and effort, uh, it was concluded with a rather um, let's say un not terribly confident conclusion that the body was Mengele's within a reasonable scientific certainty. I should say not confident. The, the, the experts were confident, but the, the public at large was not confident. And I, as one of the investigators, was also not confident because it seemed that the, that the uh, conclusion had been reached prematurely. It may have been right, but there was a great deal of evidence that had not yet been evaluated, um, that had been located in Mengele's home in Sao Paulo and other places that that would have led to a much, in, in our view, a much, much more confident conclusion. So the case was never officially closed by the Germans, which had the open file on him. And uh, I was able to convince, with my colleagues, convince uh, our government that we should keep it open until we, we really reached a more confident conclusion, until we were able to check, uh, track down all of the evidence that, that we found. I spent... Uh, 10 days in Germany going through um, the uh, diaries and and correspondence and other things that had been located in Brazil and copied and brought to, to Germany. And there I found a, a wealth of medical information about Bangalore, which was necessary for the identification. Remember, this is 1985. There's no, no DNA as a forensic tool. The body was discovered, it was, was exhumated from a, 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 a wet environment. There was no soft tissue um, left with the body. And uh, the identification that was carried out depended on comparing what was known about Mengele before he died and what could be extrapolated from his bones um, that were found in the grave. Um, so the more you knew about his medical conditions beforehand, the more confident your conclusion could have been. And so we found lots of evidence about medical treatments he received toward the end of his life in, in Brazil, including um, the name and, uh, of, his phys of his physicians and his dentist. And so in April of 1986, very quietly, without any publicity at all, um, we went back to Brazil, uh, two Israeli officials, myself and two German officials, and we were able to follow up on all the leads that I had discovered in Mengele's papers. And we uh, located the, the dentist and, and also the person who had done some root canal work on Mengele. We located x-rays. Um, we located the surgeon who had done a, a surgery on him in 1972 and a few other things. And based on that information, I believe we had made a confident and conclusive um, judgment about, about his identity. But still, the, the Israeli government wasn't convinced. They didn't feel comfortable with the conclusions because there were a few um, 
pieces of evidence that didn't make sense to them. So they can convince the German prosecutor to keep the case open. Uh, and eventually science caught up with Joseph Mengele, the science that he studied as, as a student and that was, he was so passionate about. Um, and DNA, so-called DNA fingerprinting or DNA typing, um, was developed into a forensic tool. And by 1992, um, they were able to extract infinitesimal amounts of DNA from his bones and replicate it through the new technique of PCR, polymerase chain reaction, compare it to the blood samples they had taken from Mengele's wife and the mother of his son and the son and came up with a, a 99.996% confidence that the body was Mengele's. What were the main points of Mengele's autobiographical notes that you had access to? Yeah, so one, one of the things we found <clears throat> in the papers that were located in his home in Brazil, uh, there was a letter from Mengele to his son, Rolf, who was living in, at that time, I think, in, in, in Berlin. And he talked about a project that he'd undertaken in the... Uh, early 60s and I picked it up and put it down a few times but by the time of the writing which I think was 1975 or so he had said that he was um, had, had once again resumed work on this project which was an autobiographical novel about his life. Mengele wrote this not for publication he wrote it for his family but he felt constrained by in some ways by the the truth of um By having to tell the truth, and so he decided that he would he would use literary techniques to kind of illuminate his life story in in a way that would be more useful for for his uh, children and others in his family. Um, so, in, in a way, for instance, he spends a hundred pages writing about his birth, so you can see how kind of self absorbed he he was. Uh, the autobiograph autobiography. Uh, doesn't really deal with with Auschwitz at all. Um, there are a few references to his wartime activities. It was most useful to us uh, in describing his life right after Auschwitz on the farm and also to describe his exit from Europe. Those are the, the more useful things. In writing the biography of him, it was very useful for me in terms of um, describing his student days at the university and his connection to science and his um, his admiration for his professors and his really deep passion for for his scientific pursuits. As you go around and, and teach, especially to, to young people and speak to them, how do you present the entire Mengele story? How do you deal with the concept of evil as you try to convey that to the next generation, which is, again, another, another generation removed from the events. So what I try to do in the book is to kind of separate um, Mengele from the persona that, that many people uh, understood about him. That is, uh, Mengele, because of his <laughs> notoriety and because of certain aspects of, of uh, his activities and because of the, the passion of his the subjects of his experiments and their, their um, focus on him, he, he kind of 
took on a symbolic uh, status. Um, he became, for many, symbolic of, of the Holocaust itself, uh, and also symbolic in a way of the failure of justice at the end of the war. Um, became so much larger than life in a sense that many people uh, kind of appropriated him into their own stories about their own experience during the Holocaust. There are countless examples of people who claim to have met Mengele who could not possibly have done so because they weren't there when Mengele was there or because they described him in ways that was not, were not consistent with, with Mengele himself. So I tried to um, kind of deconstruct uh, the, the, um, the real person from the, the imagined person who became also a figure of some prominence in popular culture. You know, you just think about the, uh, the boys from Brazil or the marathon man mm -hmm. where character is kind of outsized. Um, <clears throat> there was a kind of what I describe as iconification of him that he kind of rose out of himself and became a, a, an icon for for uh, for evil and an icon for uh, for medicine gone science gone mad that kind of thing so in doing that i tried to stick and hew very very closely to the facts that i could establish and i concluded that um, far from being the kind of grotesque monster that people assumed him to be um, and fantasized about him being that in some ways the truth was a bit more unsettling because um, it's easier in some ways to, to uh, conclude that someone's a monster. It kind of distances themselves from you and allows you to pile on them everything that you, that you want. And it's far easier to, to consider someone a monster than to consider the monstrous things that, that normal people can do and that enshrined institutions like medicine and science uh, can promote. And so um, I try to, if there's a kind of lesson to be learned from Mengele's story, it is that, that you need to watch out for, for institutions and especially in the case of science, for um, the kind of boundaryless science that Mengele reveled in at Auschwitz, um, that that uh, his passion and ambition um, drove him to do things beyond what would be considered normal, appropriate, or proper in any system. And uh, if you think about today, with where science is is infinitely more powerful in terms of genetics than it was at Mengele's time. With CRISPR technology, you imagine what Mengele would have done if he could have mastered CRISPR technology, or what the Nazis could have done. Uh, a technology that doesn't require uh, a Nobel Prize or a or billion dollars, you can do it modestly through mail order, that the requirement for structures that can, can tame the ambition of science scientists and can bring them into a, a standard of, uh, that's accepted and policed by, by society. And I think that's very important. Uh, this was uh, fascinating, sobering. Um, and again, thank you very, very much.
um, for sharing uh, the book. And uh, as you can see here, it's uh, I went on to Amazon and purchased the book and encourage all, all of our viewers and listeners to do the same. It's, it's extremely detailed um, and just it tells a story as uh, uh, Mr. Marwell has uh, so eloquently spoken this evening. Thank you very much. Pleasure.